0: Recovery Elevator episode three hundred and thirty six.
1: I need to admit myself somewhere because I could sit here twine blue in the face and until I have some humility, this is not gonna work.
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Susan. She's 61 years old. She's from Pennsylvania and took her last drink November 19th, 2017. It's a great interview. You guys are going to love it. Now, due to COVID, we had to cancel our Costa Rica sober travel trip and an event in Denver. But those two events are back on. We've got an alcohol-free trip to Costa Rica, January 15th to the 23rd, 2022. And We're going to the cloud forest. We're going to the beach. We're going to be chilling on a catamaran, all with people who have one goal in mind, ditching the booze. Registration opens September 1, and we've got 33 spots available. And then April 14th to the 17th, 2022, we'll be in Denver, Colorado at the Hilton Garden Inn at Union Station. This event will be all about moving energy with music that is performed live. In addition, it's all about connection, and you'll have small group breakout sessions with folks who have one goal in mind, and that is being your most authentic self without alcohol. Registration for this event opens up November 1st. Information for both of these events are at the RE website. Okay, let's get started. Today, I want to talk to you about the four main chemicals we're dealing with when we ditch the booze. I'm going to give a brief explanation of them, give a framework of how to work with these chemicals in a much healthier way, and then I'll provide a loose timeline of what to expect when you quit drinking and when these chemicals will come back into balance. The four main players in an addiction are endorphins, dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. Side note, I thought endorphins and dolphins were the same thing until about age 13. Double side note, dolphins, what a cool animal. Okay, I'm back. Endorphins and dopamine are the chemicals of progress, and these are the short-term feel-good chemicals, while serotonin and oxytocin are the long-term feel-good chemicals. Let's cover the short-term molecules first, endorphins and dopamine. Endorphins. We often hear the word endorphins with exercise, and it's true. This is the reason for the runner's high. Endorphins have one purpose, which is to mask physical pain. And since the body doesn't distinguish very well the difference between physical and emotional pain this is why running or physical movement helps us emotionally when we aren't feeling good this is the caveman chemical for survival apart from exercise another great way to release endorphins is by laughing science shows you can't laugh and be afraid at the same time the reason for this is the amygdala is deactivated when we laugh and the amygdala is the fear component of the brain. So a little lightheartedness goes a long way. What's up rule 22? And quick tip, the parasympathetic nervous system, and this is the system responsible for calm, doesn't know the difference between a fake smile and a real smile. So how does that saying go? Fake it till you make it. Okay, now let's talk about dopamine. This is the molecule we are mostly engaged with when we are dealing with an addiction. This is more accurately described as the learning molecule. Dopamine is viewed as an incentive for progress. The good feeling we get when we do something necessary for survival. Finding fire, shooting a deer with a bow and arrow, finding water, searching and finding shelter. This is what makes us a goal-oriented species. Back in the Paleolithic era, hunters and gatherers, when they saw a tree filled with fruit, they would get a small hit of dopamine as they approached the tree. Again, this is a learning molecule. Addictions hijack the dopamine system. And alcohol raises the dopamine in our brains by over 100 to 200%, and cocaine actually raises it by 300% temporarily. Then there's a major crash, cue anxiety. Let's talk ambitions. It feels good to put effort into a goal. I bet the Pyramids of Giza was a big project. So we are wired that when we see something we want, then dopamine is released, and we can then move towards it. Science shows that when we write down our goals, the same thing happens the way this system is built is to reward us for the journey and not just the final destination so there is much truth to the saying it's the journey and not the destination so alcohol circumvents this system so we get that intense dopamine hit now as if we're walking towards and achieving our life goals but in reality none of those two have happened unless your goal is to barf on yourself on an overnight bus in the andes and chile this may or may have not have been me so Dopamine is highly addictive, and it should be. Human beings walk thousands of miles over the ice shelf of Eastern Asia to reach the Americas because of dopamine. The dopamine system worked great for humans until the world modernized faster than this system could adapt. Alcohol completely overruns this system, as well as social media, emails, texts, and all the dings, bings, bells, and notifications we receive throughout the day. It's said, and I concur, if you wake up in the morning and crave a drink, you're probably an alcoholic. If you wake up and feel the urge to check your smartphone first thing, which is what about 70 to 85% of Americans do in the morning, well, then you're an addict or addicted to the dopamine chemicals. The problem occurs when we sacrifice everything for that short-term hit of dopamine. Audios, family, job, home, driver's license, etc. So hang with me. Shortly, I'll cover healthy ways to retrain this system. So now I want to talk about the long-term chemicals that that control our long-term feelings. Let's talk serotonin. This is the selfless chemical. This makes us feel valued with people we trust. It's what makes us feel connected and keeps the circle of community strong. This is the reason we are highly social animals. Guys, we don't have sharp teeth Our arms like gorillas. We have to work together to survive. This helps us form bonds of trust and friendship, fulfillment, trust, and camaraderie. Serotonin can help turn any one of us into a leader or a loyal follower. Stress declines and our willingness to work with others skyrockets. Without serotonin, we isolate. Paranoia and incorrect narratives take over. When in crisis, it's this chemical that helps us pull together. When we are addicted to alcohol, our ability to come into the group is drastically hindered. That's why at all of our new member orientations and the first session of our courses, I talk about the monumental achievement it is of just showing up. When we have serotonin in our body, and 80% of serotonin is produced in the gut, we don't need likes, shares, or views to feel whole. Serotonin is also addictive to others. Studies show that serotonin is released when we are accountable to other people, not sobriety clocks or ourselves, i.e. trying to go 30 days without alcohol on your own in secret doesn't boost your serotonin levels. Okay, now let's chat oxytocin, known as the love or connection molecule. This is responsible for feelings of love, deep friendship, and trust. And as you've heard on the podcast, the opposite of addiction is connection. So this is the triple scoop banana split of the four chemicals, but it takes time to cue the body to start releasing this chemical again. Oxytocin is the chemical of empathy and humility. This chemical is responsible for us loving other people, and most importantly, ourselves. Self-loathing is almost a given when one has a drinking problem and this is why. There's a massive void of oxytocin and it's not quite as simple as a chemical imbalance, but it's a big reason why. So unlike the instant gratification of dopamine, oxytocin is a long-term feel-good chemical that tells the parasympathetic nervous system that we can chill out and kick our feet up. This is the feeling of being inside a group or a circle of safety. Oxytocin is released with human touch so adios COVID, it's time to start hugging again, giving high fives and dancing salsa with a partner. And side note, oxytocin and melatonin, this is the sleep and restorative chemical, are released hand in hand. You're going to sleep a hell of a lot better once your body starts releasing oxytocin. So now let's cover how we can work with these as we ditch the booze, and then I'll give you a loose timeline of when these chemicals should start naturally emerging again in your system. Endorphins. Keep running, Keep gardening. This is a much healthier way to override the physical and emotional discomfort of quitting drinking. Also, laugh, laugh, laugh. And guys, did you know I got fired at my carnival job at the carousel? Yeah, I was always horsing around. Yeah, we tried. Dopamine. Okay, here's where we need to do the work. It's important we retrain the brain to release dopamine with other activities. Pick a short-term goal. Maybe it's learning the guitar, maybe it's finding a species of birds in the wild, or snakes. And here's an even better way. Science shows that a spike of dopamine is released when we help other people. I recently went to an AA 4th of July barbecue. It was a lot of fun. And I sat across from a guy who was struggling with a capital S. I didn't even need to ask. After I was done eating, I went to the dessert table and put three options on a plate and then returned to the table and delivered the plate to the gentleman. It instantly felt good for me to do it. And as I walked away, he stopped me and said, hey, that was really kind of you so dopamine is a big reason we are of service to each other and a big reason we've done this podcast for 336 straight mondays once we have dopamine system cued for healthier stimuli in the brain this is the time when serotonin starts to naturally emerge with this comes a sense of belonging and if we continue to stick with it oxytocin will then emerge on the scene the long-term chemicals are contagious for ourselves and others This is why we love inspiring movies that motivate us to perform our own selfless acts. This is why we cheer people on at marathons or say hells yes when we hear someone hits an AF milestone. So here's a timeline for this, and this is a loose timeline. Please don't say, well, it's been six months away from alcohol and Paul Churchill said, I'd be feeling this way. The human body is incredibly complex and you and your body know much better than me. And here's the good news if alcohol is removed and we find healthier ways to cue dopamine other than alcohol smartphone social media etc then the long-term chemicals will show up another way to say this is the body knows how to heal itself when it's in the right environment with endorphins when you remove alcohol your workouts won't suck you'll be getting the full benefits of this chemical within the first 24 to 72 hours dopamine This system can rewire itself with healthier habits within six months. Again, loose timeline. And if you quit drinking, and that's all you do, you'll still find ways to shortcut the system with sugar, TV, or Sour Patch Kids so it may take longer. Serotonin. This is anywhere from three to nine months. Give it time. And remember, most serotonin is created in the gut. I love Frito-Lays, but they are not kind to the digestive system oxytocin. It takes about six to 12 months for oxytocin to begin showing up on the scene. And this is all given that you're doing the work. There's a concept called PAWS, P-A-W-S in recovery, which is post-acute withdrawal symptoms. I like to call them just healing symptoms because it's the body, mind, soul, and spirit recalibrating itself with that alcohol. So please trust this process. Be patient, be calm, stick with it, and we got your back. And before we hear from Odette and Susan, let's hear from BetterHelp.
2: I want to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, BetterHelp. Mental health matters. And as we continue to live through this pandemic and slowly go back to resuming activities, such as going back to work or attending some social gatherings, it's important to have someone that can help us process all of our emotions and life stressors. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. This platform is super easy to navigate. You can log into your account at any time and interact with your counselor by sending them a message. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly or video phone sessions. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. I highly encourage you to check it out. Visit www.betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. This podcast episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com forward slash elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Susan to the podcast. Susan, welcome.
1: How are you today? I'm fine, Odette. Thank you so much for asking, and I hope you're well.
2: Yes, I'm well. Thank you so much. I'm really happy we're doing this, and let's get right to it, Susan. When was the last time you had a drink?
1: My last drink was on November 19th in 2017. How do you feel? Oh, I feel fantastic. I feel better every year. Every year is better. And can you give listeners
2: a little background on yourself, Susan? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What do you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun?
1: Sure. Thank you. Well, I'm 61. And, and I'm single. I was married twice over the years, and I have one daughter and two grandchildren uh, currently. I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania, but I left there when I was 21, and I lived in Los Angeles for 30 years, and then Colorado for five, and now finally back on the East Coast since 2011. So I've done a lot of moving <laughs> over mm-hmm. the years. I work in corporate America in the medical device business, And for fun, I love to read novels. I do a lot of cooking. Definitely a fan of exercise, and I like to mix that up with a lot of indoor and outdoor type things, such as swimming, the beach, bike riding. And I really love TV, (laughs) which sounds kind of silly, but it was one of the things that really helped me when I came home from work was to turn on a show instead of opening my bottle of wine.
2: Yeah, we have to make those little changes in our habits. And honestly, there are so much good content out out there these days. I also love TV. (laughs) Yeah,
1: there's good stuff. I have a list. I'm like, oh, my God, it's embarrassing. But I do. Yeah, I really enjoy it. Awesome, Susan. And give us some background on your
2: history with drinking. When did you start your relationship with alcohol? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving your life? And what got you to quit? What got you here?
1: Okay, well, gosh, you know, since i'm you know older when i when i quit i was adding up and i actually have like 44 years of of drinking that's a long time when i was 14 years old is that's when i remember my first real drink other than little sips of my mom's and dad's but that was around the time i you know started hanging out with some friends and there was a little bit of a little bit of sneaking around when i went to stay at my friends' houses but then what really did it was when I was in high school still, I, I met a, the bad boy of the school and fell in love and did a 360 in about one day. And, I, and I'm not exaggerating. It was my mother said it was like one day. I, um, I was straight A student, first chair clarinet, just very, you know, sports the whole nine yards, met him and went out uh, with him and his friends. He was two years older than me a lot of his friends were even older than that and they slipped me a pill mm-hmm. and some it was beer back then we didn't drink wine back then but beer and all of my inhibitions just disappeared and and I felt like I fit in and so that was kind of the beginning the beginning of the end so to speak mm-hmm. i um so that went on for just kind of like that in my young in my younger years like partying with everybody and just not really noticing it was a problem because everyone was doing it and then I did I ended up marrying him at a very young age got divorced when I was 21 and then moved to California at that time where I got involved with another guy and and kind of the same thing we had a group of friends and that's what we did was you know just partying all the time so it wasn't until I was about, I would say, 30 years old. I had my daughter by then. She was two, and um, I, I I remarried. I married an, an, another an, um, another person by then. We had our daughter, and that's when I started noticing because he and I had had gone through some years of partying as well. But then, when it came time to get pregnant, we had made that decision. We we tried to get everything out of our everything out of our homes and lives and, you know, just concentrate on on getting better. And I was so, it was so easy for me to let go of the weed and all the other garbage, but but not the wine. Mm. (laughs) I just could not, did not want to let that go. And it was a couple years after that, I decided I would admit myself to a place, back then it was called Schick, I don't even think it exists anymore. I did that. I could only stay for a long weekend because of work commitments and family commitments. So it's like, well, at least let me go in and see what it's like and, you know, kind of get a feel for it. So I did. And I came out of there, went to a couple AA meetings, joined the, it was like an IOP program that they had, tried that for a while. And I I was able to stay away for probably four months from, from alcohol. And then it just started up again, and it definitely was worse, as they say, the progressiveness of the disease. So I was um, raising my daughter, working, uh, always being what we call the functioning alcoholic. Now when I look back, I'm like, how in the hell? How did I do that? How could I have kept all this together, drinking every night? I was the kind of a drinker that I would get to work almost every day take care of my daughter in the evening while having a couple glasses of wine and then have a couple more when she went to bed. So I, I never thought of myself as a, I wouldn't drink a lot every night, but I was consistent. If I were to try to miss a night, it was so hard for me. Like I, I just, I, I couldn't, I just got to the point where I couldn't anymore. I just had to stop on my way home every night and get that bottle of wine. And then after that, um, that continued, on and off, I would try on and off over the years. Uh, I got into therapy, counseling. Once in a while, I would try an AA meeting again, and just nothing was working. So, it's, at one point, I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to accept it for what it is right now because I, I'm not in the right state of mind to to do what I knew I had to do to quit.
2: And Susan, if you don't mind me asking, when you say that you went to this. Um, Treatment center or when when you went away for a weekend, mm-hmm. you were very high functioning, which I know a lot of listeners can relate to that. What was scaring you so much to that you had to go to that place because you know I feel like you did almost like a reverse intervention on yourself, and <laughs> you were drinking, you said like a couple of glasses of wine, and then when your kid went to bed, a couple more. but what even made you think I need help? I feel like a lot of people are stuck in this this is normal. I'm just busy working hard and then having some wine at the end of the night to unwind. What what voice told you like, this is probably something you need to go and get help for? How did that idea to even go check yourself in come up?
1: Well, number one, my, my father, mm. he was an alcoholic. Got and it. I saw him do this for years. And never miss a day at work. But every night he had to have his scotch and he had to have his beer. And then I saw it become progressive where it was like, you know, a little more scotch, a little more beer. And I just could see, I could see myself becoming that. So that was a big part of it. And I didn't like, I didn't like that everything else I was doing in my life was healthy. Like I was eating healthy. I was exercising. And then I would, I felt like I was, t- I was two people. I'm like, how long can I do this? Because I literally felt like Dr. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. You know, little Miss, you know, goody two-shoes, so to speak, during the day. Work and taking care of everybody else. That's the nature of my business. Taking care of everybody else and my family. And then I would at night just, you know, put poisons in my body. And, you know, (laughs) just turn like, again, like the 360 I did when I was 16 years old. And I'm like, okay, something is really wrong here. You've got to talk to someone. You have to. So that's what I think did. I was grasping and looking, thinking, okay, maybe I need to, maybe there's a problem, I need to do something.
2: Wow, what a level of self-awareness and honesty. I I really relate to your story, because I also have a dad who had a similar progression that what you shared your dad had, where it just slowly went from a habit to a disease. And, And my dad to this day I've asked him like when did you think that switch flipped and he's like I don't know you know I just it was such a slow progression until I couldn't stop drinking anymore and I feel very aligned with what you're saying you know my life was still pretty much quote-unquote put together when I decided to drink but I it's almost like I was looking at the future and I was seeing my journey as oh Pre- this the prediction. I knew the outcome if I kept going, and that was enough for me to to get help and to talk about it. And it sounds like that's similar to what you experienced. So that's that's very brave, Susan.
1: Yeah. Well, an- another part of that is I I have always been not a, I wouldn't call myself a religious fanatic at, at for, by any stretch, but I've always had a faith, and I I always in my heart knew that God was protecting me, and I felt like I was going to push the limits. And that, you know, how many times can I drive while drinking? How many times can I, I mean, I, I, my list of like, I don't know how I'm alive stories are like too much to go into. Mm -hmm. Or how did I not hurt someone else? So the extent of my hurting other people, and myself, other than me, my medical, you know, because of what I did from drinking, but, but for me, it was more about hurting people emotionally. And that was that's horrible. So I I really knew that I, I just didn't want to push that envelope anymore. And then I and then it took me a long time after that to come to grips with it. And it was gosh, it was so well, probably about four years ago or more like four, four and a half years ago is when I really finally was ready to to give it up. <laughs> and I and I say that because so many times I thought I was and I wasn't thought I was, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And then finally, my daughter was going to have her, her second baby, my little, my grandson, Wessie. And, and I knew I was I was in therapy with, with a lovely lady. I just adore her. I still say a prayer and thank her every day. But I was like, Okay, I'm on a mission. I've got to quit before Wessie is born. Because my other my other grandchild, Madison, was already getting to that age where she would as, I was fearful that she would start associating Mima with wine, mm-hmm. and I didn't want that to happen, like it had happened with my daughter. And I, I was always surprised now that I am sober and I talk to my daughter about it. How much the children know that they don't say. I'm like, oh my god, she noticed at such a very young age. So I, um, I was determined, and as I was in therapy. It still wasn't doing, it wasn't all I needed. So one day I said, her name was Heather, I said, Heather, I really think that I need to admit myself somewhere because I could sit here until I'm blue in the face. And until I have some humility, this is not going to work. So I, again, <laughs> put myself in, but it was outpatient. I didn't stay overnight, but it was very intense for two weeks where there were people straight off the streets of Providence There were doctors, attorneys, I mean, you name it, they were in there, and they would come and go all the time, so it wasn't the same group at all times. So I really got to hear everyone's stories and see, like, everything I needed to see. I was in one week, and then my insurance said, hey, you know, we'll approve it. So I stayed another. And Heather actually said to me, she goes, I learned a lot from you because I know now what to watch out for with people. Like, I should have seen this, that you really needed more. So that... When I went there, I I left there feeling strong and I went straight into IOP. During IOP, every week I was screwing up. I was like, oh my God, what is wrong with you? And I would, every day they ask, I'm like, I can't lie. So I had to say, it was, like, it was like twice in one week. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry, but I, I drank two glasses of wine last night. And I'd start crying and I wasn't the only one at the table crying, but I mean, we were all fessing up and, and it was on that, on the night, the day of that, of the, the the 19th, I remember this vividly. I'm driving home. I'm crossing over the Newport Bridge, sobbing. And I called my sister, who's also in recovery. And, and I was just, you know, spilled my guts. I'm like, there's something wrong with me. I'm one of those people that the book talks about that just will never get it. And she's calmed me down. And she overnighted this little book called Acceptance to me. And I have the chills right now because I read that book and something very spiritual took over and I have never had a drink since. And it was my moment of acceptance, surrender. I turned my problem over to God and I have the chills so bad. I have never turned back. I mean, I have my tools I use. I I, religiously every day um, with my passages that I read, with the thanks that I give back for me, you know, my high power is God and I'm, you know, I, that works for me. Whatever works for people, I I admire anything and respect whatever people do. But so that for me, is what did it. (laughs) I'll never forget that moment.
2: Oh, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. And I do feel like I, I was listening to your story, which is so powerful. And so many, so many things were coming to my mind, you know, recovery runs in your family. How cool is that? You know, you said mm-hmm. your father was in recovery, your sister who you called then sent you that book and mm-hmm. you're changing the trajectory. You know, you're making these changes, thinking of your granddaughters, thinking of your daughter. And it's cool. It's you are doing it. And all of those times that you said that you were fessing up, that you were failing, those were all just times where you were learning and you were growing. And it does take time to close that gap of that cognitive dissonance between, you know, you feel like you're stuck in this loop, but you're almost like in this battle of yourself against yourself, of the conscious you making a decision, I'm not going to drink today, then the subconscious kind of betraying you, and then doing it again and again until the subconscious and the conscious line up and you were able to get it. And It takes so much time for some of us. I had so many day ones and I see listeners and people in a roll call say, you know, day one again, day one again. And I'm like, as many as it takes, because you never know when they're going to have that moment like the one you had, whether it comes through a spiritual, you know, feeling or whether it comes through just a, a, a clarity, a mental shift. But it does happen and it is normal to feel Lost and feel like it's not working. Like, why isn't it working?
1: Yeah, it's so true. And I always knew in my heart, like I knew I was a good person. My grandma used to tell my mom after I went off off the deep end when I was fifteen or so. My grandma said, "You know what? We instilled good in her. It's in there. It's just lost somewhere right now." And she was right, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And it. You know, later in life, I'm pr- proud to say that I, I got through that, the the craziness and all the you know stuff I did and all that, and but I I remained a a good person through it, and my my heart was always good. I just did the wrong things, but my heart was good. I guess if that makes sense.
2: A hundred percent. And we are good, and we are deserving. And a lot of the times, we are trapped in this shame closet, and mm. we feel like we. We're not good. We feel like we don't deserve. And that is dangerous because just like your grandma said, you know, it—it it is inside of all of us, the strength, the courage, the the love, the goodness. We just have to believe it. And sadly, sometimes it takes a while to, to arrive there. So I'm certainly glad that, that you did get there, Susan. And tell me what happened next. I mean, you had that beautiful moment where you... Accepted and surrendered and had a connection with your higher power. How was time after that? How was the next thirty, sixty days? Your your first month or two after that.
1: Yeah, it actually was was really very. The timing was really good for me because. Well, I guess I sh- to back up one second was that. One of the reasons I could focus and go to that outpatient and and the other items were that I had been laid off from corporate America. So I had time to for myself for the first time in my life ever to focus on myself. And then directly after I got out of, you know, the all the other IOP, blah, blah, blah. Weston had been born and it was time for me to start being the nanny when my daughter went back to work. So that was incredible because she could count on me any time of the day, day or night, never worrying like, oh, God, is my mom going to be drinking today or tonight? And I wasn't. She knew. And it was just like the perfect transition because I was able to nurture him. And I I'm, I, need to nurture things as part of my personality. So I had little Wessie to nurture. And then Little by little, I ended up going back to work, like part-time at first, and then I got a full-time job, and then finally got back into corporate about a year, about ex- almost exactly a year after I became sober. So I felt strong enough within that year to, to not have some crazy corporate day and say, I need my wine on the way home. Boy, I had to really have a lot of talks with myself about that <laughs> uh, to mentally prepare Especially that first day driving home. And then it just got easier. It's like, Oh, you can do this, this is nothing, blah, blah, blah. Because I was listening to Paul Churchill on the way on the way there and on the way home and all my <laughs> podcasts. But another thing I wanna mention because it was another another big part of my my journey, I guess, is my little dog Louis. I had told my therapist Heather, I'm like, you know what, he's he's seventeen years my dog and he was like my son, as you know, our pets are and and he was sick and i was like oh gosh i think i maybe i should wait to quit because i know i'm going to drink when he when he passes mm. and so but she's like oh no no let's just give it a try you know so so i did and then he lived for almost exactly 6 months and the night that i came home from work he had a vet appointment and and i walk in and he's on the floor And, and I knew right away and I, boy, I paced, I paced, I cried, I held him. I, and I, I didn't even tell my daughter, I couldn't call anyone. I couldn't talk to anyone. I couldn't say anything. I got in the car with him and I was going to go to the liquor store and then something stopped me. And I was like, no, 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 no. So I went back in the house and I made it through the night next day I took him to the vet and uh my Heather my therapist she's more, almost like a friend you know and she goes you know what Sue I understand your your pain but I really believe that God kept Louis alive for those six months because you needed he him to be still on the other end of that couch while you didn't have your glass of wine I'm like oh my god So Louie was part of my part of my recovery, too, and really helped me get through it. I think I, I truly do believe that she was right about that. And so anyway, yeah, so that was my, that's my, my big thing. And then back to corporate America. And after that, like the podcasts and meetings and kind of a combination of of things, because I like to mix it up. Mm -hmm. I don't get, I don't get bored then, because I can't rely just on a, a, I don't. I don't choose to be a hardcore AA person. I believe in a lot of what I read in there, in the book and in the 12 steps, but I needed more than that. And I cleared that, I guess you could say, I guess with my counselor, because he felt that I was, that I was trying to tell him that I wanted to slip away from that. And I was scared I was gonna relapse if I did. And he encouraged me that, it's okay, you're strong, you've got your own set of tools, so you do with it as you wish. And you don't have to have that to recover. So the beauty of Cafe RE, one of the many beauties of it, is that I can talk about AA in here, in these rooms, but I can't talk about podcasts and so forth in AA. That makes all the difference in the world to me. But then to come here and find the AA meeting on a Saturday is like, oh, I have the best of both worlds. This place has it all. So I'm just like, I feel really lucky and happy. And I have a a strong, burning desire to help others at this Hmm. point in my recovery, I guess, more than anything. I love that, Susan.
2: I mean, I love that you, throughout this whole story that you've been sharing, I can really sense how honest you've been with yourself. Because back to this talk about different tools, you know, some people love consistency and doing the same things over and over again, and eating the same meal over and over again, and that that works for them. Some people need to change it up and love spontaneity and so they need a different approach. and that's why for me, it's i I try to not prescribe the same advice to everyone because truly it is dependent on us and our story and our personality and what works for us individually. And I feel like throughout this whole, hour, you know, you've been sharing, you know yourself and you know what works for you. And you've also discovered how strong you are along the way. I mean, dogs are such an important part of this journey for many of us. And I was like getting teary eyed when you were sharing the story of your dog because loss is hard. And I feel like he was probably proof that you can sit with yourself through grief and you learned to grieve without escaping yourself and going to the liquor store, even though you were already there, I think he was watching you. And I think he was the one who prevented you from stopping, you know, it it all is working in our favor. And it's, it's great to see that you've been able to discover, like always knowing who you are, but also discovering these new layers of strengths within yourself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a neat way to put it. Like there's so much that I think we uncover as we begin the healing process and then that next stage of the freedom and then the peace that all comes with it i'm Mm. like it doesn't get any better than this how could it possibly get any better than this i just if if it did i wouldn't even know how to act yeah there's there's no better way to uh, to live And, and you know so the the strength and the and the community w- what you learn from that and the the little pieces that we can take all the time from others you know that little bit of give and take and and i you know one of the things i read every day is a passage from one of one of my 24 hours a day i think it's called and it's aa based but it talks about a lot of things and just how you know if you want love you got to give you have to give love if you you know, whatever you want, you have to give. Um, And that's how the universe works, I think. And so I'm enjoying giving back more than ever. And then I, and then I get something as, as well, the circle, such a beautiful circle that it creates there.
2: total circle. And it just is such a evidence that we end up being mirrors of each other because it's true I read this quote a while ago I don't know where I read it from but it said something it was about relationships and it was saying you know if you're expecting you know for people to be a certain way you're expecting patience you're expecting quality time and all of these things if you were to write out all of the things that you're looking for the way to get them is to turn around and then be those things yourself Instead of sitting on the expectation side, sit on the action side where you are the things that you want. And that is the only way to get them back. You know, it's just so hard sometimes to, you know, take an honest look at ourselves in the mirror and realize that, you know, even outside of drinking, we are full of things that we still need to work on. I mean, are there any things for you that have come up once you drop the bottle that you're like crap well I still need to work on this 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 like what was underneath the drinking oh my for God. you
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's so much stuff like especially when when I sat and did the looking at all the, the fears and the resentments and the there's just so much but like one of the big things I think is when I look at my but my my mom I guess I'll use her as an example, like so many times over the years where I'm like, oh, blame her for everything. And it wasn't until not that long ago when I I had a realization like, you know, what? <laughs> let's look at this from the other way. Why did it take me all these years to look at it this way? Perhaps my mother wasn't happy and perhaps she's still not happy. What did she not have? So so that was a big, a big realization for me, like how, like trying to stop holding bad feelings and looking deep into what may have been the causes of certain things. You know, why can't I stay in a relationship for more than five years? Cause I'm not good at it. I can't, I'm, I'm like, I, you know, there's all kinds of things like that, that I'm uncovering and trying to figure out. But one of the beauties of being an older person is that a lot of these things I, I, I accept I'm simplifying if i can't figure it out it's okay there's a lot of things over the years i had my big list of what i what i want and what i need and da, da, da. and that list just gets smaller all the time because i'm like oh my god you silly thing you don't need that you don't even really want it anymore but it takes it took me years to figure all that out to not have that want 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 all the time so But I still have so much to work on all the time. I'm thinking of, I read a passage or I hear someone in a meeting and I'm like, or in a chat, we call them. I'm like, oh man, I need to be working on that too. (laughs) So I have my notepad. I'm like, I'm writing, writing, writing. Like, look what they just said. And I hang up and I'm like shaking my head. Like, oh my God, this was amazing. But there's, yeah, tons, tons to uncover.
2: Do you still get uh, cravings or do you still get triggered, Susan? What do you do when it gets hard?
1: You know, I don't really get, uh, I don't get a physical trigger. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't crave like, I don't have those kinds of cravings, but I have memory more like a memory craving, I guess, like, like Christmas shopping last year, I would always, when I drank, I would, you know, shop a while, stop, get my list out, look, look over things, have a glass of wine, you know, and I was shopping and I, that memory came in my head. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) And I just I just kind of started talking to myself and laughing at myself like, you can't do that. And then it just goes away. It, It just goes away probably by thinking for a minute and looking at thinking about what might happen. And, you know, I mean, so I I get through it pretty quickly now. But every once in a while, those things will happen. I do have a fear of dating because I, (laughs) I haven't been doing any of that. I've been married, you know, twice and almost a third time. And I'm, you know, I, 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 I don't think I really found my soulmate yet. Maybe I will in my old age, but I, now I have a fear of that because I've gotten through this thing without that. So I know for a fact that I, I think anyway, that I would, I would have to date someone, that's also sober. I I wouldn't want to be subjected to that every night. Yeah. That wouldn't be good at all. I that's asking for trouble for me. So I I know to stay away from that.
2: Well, and it seems like you've also learned through all of this like you said since you've been on your own through the process that you've discovered that this very hard piece for a lot of people to discover, you've discovered that you Can stand on your own? Is companionship amazing? Do we all want healthy companionship? I I think yes, like we thrive on being with people, whether that's a partner, family, friends, but a lot I used to believe I couldn't stand on my own. I used to believe what happens if, you know, if my marriage ends now it's what, what would happen? Could I do it? What would happen if my parents died right now? Like what I used to think I couldn't stand on my own. And it seems to me that you've discovered that you can't stand on your own. It doesn't mean you want to be alone always. It just means that you've almost found this strength in yourself that for a lot of us, you know, we sometimes feel like we can't.
1: Yeah, I think I have. Like I kind do I, I it's hard to even describe sometimes like, I sometimes women. I think generally women at my age, if we've lived alone for a while, I don't want to you know make anything sound too stereotypical. But but my friends, quite a few of us are in, in the same boat, and we're like, oh no, never again. Like you get to a point where you do learn that this is maybe what we prefer in the in the in these years. <laughs> and um, yeah, I would you know if someone comes along, that'd be great. I prefer a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> or someone that's not around. <laughs> someone that's not always there. Because I need, I need my, my me time now that I've learned how to be a little selfish.
2: Yeah, and you've understood boundaries, and you've understood almost this, this new type of relationship that does happen with sobriety. You know, I think relationships naturally shift when people start on this journey. If you're already with someone then there's a lot of change that happens and sometimes our partner isn't used to that and they struggle because like you said we're used to putting ourselves first enjoying our space alone our time alone and all of these new things It, like you said it would have to be someone who gets it who's also in recovery or maybe not in recovery but understands this dynamic that is more about less control and more freedom, like understanding that understanding that love equals freedom is part of what I've learned through sobriety versus uh, unhealthy attachment.
1: Yes. Oh, I love that. Yes, that's I totally agree. Um, and that's a really good way to look at it. Yeah, it's it can be hard. And if we have high, I have a high pressure job, you know, mm-hmm. I support big teams. And so I'm literally taking care of everybody else all day long. That's what I do. Well, so, so a little bit of me time, I use it wisely. Of course. <laughs> now, now I do, before I didn't, but now I do. Of course,
2: and you protect it. And and Susan, what are some things, I know you like variety and I hear you on this, but what are some things on a day-to-day that, that work for you that are maybe some newfound rituals that you really enjoy and that are part of your habits these days?
1: Um. So I get up super early. I set my alarm for five o'clock. Um, that allows me time to first thing I do is read my novel before the whole world gets started. And then I usually take thirty to forty-five minutes just to read to read a novel of cho- of my choice. And I have my 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 recovery portion every morning. It only takes fifteen minutes, but it's the daily reflection, serenity prayer, another prayer, and another twenty-four hours a day, another based book and uh, Joel Osteen word of the day. I love Joel. And then I have not every day, but at least a few, maybe four or five times a week. I like doing a podcast. It could be, you know, always you. And then I'll try to fit in an Annie Grace. I'll try to fit in an Oprah and I'll try to fit in press possibly a Dan Harris. Joel Osteen is something that I watch on a weekly basis because he on a Sunday will get me ready for the rest of the week because he gives me hope that there are good people Mm. on this absolutely insane world. And so I don't, I don't know. He's, he is one of my favorite people in the world because he's positive. He talks about recovery all the time. I think he understands it. He gives people strength in that. So he's one of my big, yeah, yeah, I, I don't like to get through my week without hearing a little Joel on a Sunday.
2: <laughs> yeah, I and I love that you mentioned this um, circle of influence is so important. I feel like the people that we spend time with affect our our thoughts, our emotional well-being, and, and we learn to protect our energy, but I also am I'm a big believer of circle of influence being people that don't even know us. I have my own group of best friends that don't even know (laughs) that I exist. You know, I have Uh Pema children, And just like you're (laughs) saying about Joel, you know, it's understanding and recognizing that there are teachers out there for us everywhere. And we just have to, you know, find them, choose to rely on them. And I think it's important. I think for me, I love having these mentors. And like I said, they don't even know me, but they are such important people to me. And even my therapist. You what the way you were talking about Heather made me think of my therapist. Her name is Manon. Shout out to her. She's in Mexico. But you know, she she's not my friend because she's made that uh <laughs> she's made that boundary very clear, which I think has been healthy for us because she catches all my blind spots. But she mm-hmm. is such an important person in my life that I love so dearly and so deeply. And I was really happy to hear you talk about Heather that way because We have to find our circle of influence and we have to hang on to those people that are adding value to our lives and giving us perspective.
1: I agree with you a hundred percent. I'd be lost without all my people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I really would be. (laughs) So I feel fortunate that I've, you know, and I'm, and I'm always, I always look to add on, you know, that's why I like listening and I've, I've always been more of a listener in meetings especially in AA, because I was scared of the hardcore AA people. And I'm an eternal optimist. Mm -hmm. And this girl, Sharon, and I would sit in the corner together. And once in a while, we would speak, but we were the optimists. And whenever we did share, it was something on a more positive note. And I feel like they didn't like that. (laughs) So I just tended to shrink away then. But so I, I like to listen. And, and I learn an awful lot. But now as I get As I'm getting into a few years, I, you know, I want to be, that's why I started, I became a host because I thought, well, hey, there's a little way to to start to give a little back because that's what I really want to do now. And so I hope, you know, I hope through that, that I can give a little back and help someone else. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I sweat every time I do it, but I'm getting, I'm getting there. (laughs) Proud
2: of you. Proud of you. And more opportunities will come. You'll be surprised at how service Work works. You know, the more we are in that mindset, in that alignment with giving back, then before you know it, someone's asking you to talk or someone's calling you to ask you for advice or just to listen. So I, I love it that you're kind of shifting into a chapter of your journey where you feel like you have. To give you know sometimes it, I feel like that ebbs and flows sometimes we have to be very careful especially if we're very given like yourself like we can't always be pouring out onto others sometimes we have to kind of become like this cocoon and then and then we're ready and then maybe we have to cocoon back up again and then we're ready to give more so it, it's a flow and I'm, I'm excited to hear that you're finding excitement and joy in giving Susan I have some questions we've reached the, the rapid fire round so if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less that would okay. be fabuloso. Are you ready?
1: Yeah, I think so. I'm going to try to do it quick.
2: <laughs> what is your favorite non-alcoholic beverage?
1: Oh, that. I love the sparkling water. My favorite one is the the lime
0: sparkling mm-hmm. water
1: with tons of ice cubes. I'm an ice cube junkie. And, and cement is my all-time favorite. What's an unexpected perk of this journey? realizing all the, all the freedom I got back from not planning my drinking. <laughs> I mm. was like, I had no idea how much time I put into that. So all that, all that time, all that time that I got back and the freedom, not doing that, I, yeah, I never expected that to be such a main important thing to me
2: yeah we realize how much mental space all of those thoughts were taking. It, it's insane.
1: yeah, having to cover your butt, it's like, no wait, oh my God, what did I say? What did I do? How do I oh my gosh, don't have to, you don't have to think about this stuff anymore.
2: I have a a different question for you that is normally not in my rotation, but we are um we're getting a lot of young people reach out to us on Instagram, and it is hard uh, to reconcile the decision for them that they have to quit drinking uh, because they're young and you know we've had people that are 19 20 21 and and they really want to do it but they're struggling because they are so young and 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 i hear that you know but uh, on the other side is a a group of us who are older saying man i wish i got it when i was younger so what would you say to young people who think that they may be giving something up if they choose to pursue this path now
1: Oh my gosh. I you know, I would definitely tell them, try not to overcomplicate it. Drinking is so overrated. And realize that they have more strength than they think that they do. So mm-hmm. if they have any any idea that there might be a problem, don't wait to do it because they will really find that everything in life that they're trying to accomplish. May come to their may come to them just a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. and their families will be possibly without dysfunction. and where you're talking and you're thinking and everyone is clear life. I, I guess to know that having a clear head and a clear mind and a, and a, a simple life without the complication of alcohol is one of the most beautiful things that they will ever decide in their life by far, hands down. I love that advice, Susan.
2: Thank you. And before yeah. we depart, can you give listeners your own you may have to say adios to booze if line?
1: Oh, these <laughs> are always funny. Oh, my God, there's, there's a million. But I think, yeah, so you may, you may realize you, you have to say adios to booze if you are stressing months before the Christmas holiday about how you're going to cook on Christmas Day This is how do I put this the right way? Knowing that I was the kind of I could only keep enough alcohol in the house for one day. So for me, it was like, okay, you have to have wine for Christmas Day, but you can't go buy it on Christmas Day. So (laughs) how are you going to buy some the day before, knowing that you can't drink it all that night? I mean, (laughs) if that makes sense. Yes, you were (laughs) in a conundrum. (laughs) I was like, holy hell! I would literally have to make my gravy the night before. I would have to add the stick of butter to the to the bottle of wine. So I wouldn't drink it because I couldn't keep a bottle of wine in my house without drinking it. God forbid.
2: Susan, I am so, (laughs) I'm so, so glad you're on this journey with us. I'm so grateful for your story, your perspective and everything that you've learned, all of your experience. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. And I can't wait for everyone to listen to this.
1: Thank you. You're amazing. I really had a great time and I love, um, I love getting to know you and and the team better. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Susan. Have a good rest of your day.
1: You too. And that's
2: a wrap for our interview today, team. Before I say adios, I want to spend a few minutes chatting with you all. I just got back home from spending three weeks in Guadalajara with my family. And the day before I came back, I went to an AA meeting with my dad. My dad was celebrating his 12th sober birthday at that meeting. It was pouring rain and the little room filled up little by little with all of his Brothers and sisters in recovery. There was cake, there were newcomers, and there were people who had been there for years. The rows of chairs filled up, and when I heard my dad share his testimony, I saw myself in his words. And that's the thing about this journey. We think we're ahead or behind of others, but the truth is, we are all walking alongside each other. Most of us have the same lessons to learn, the same hurt to heal from and the same joy to find. It's a bit complicated sometimes. Seeing my dad as my dad and also seeing my dad as my fellow brother on this journey. The roles get a bit tricky sometimes because a lot of my healing is intertwined with my upbringing. However, I left the meeting feeling humbled, hopeful, and reminded that we are all simply human, doing the best that we can. I also felt super grateful when I left that meeting. My dad shared that without his support system, his family and his friends in recovery, this journey would be a million times tougher. I believe this. I believe that the buffer system that we create for ourselves here through the community of RE helps us navigate the world better, helps us feel understood, and helps us feel like we belong. What a gift to walk this path together. Remember that you're not alone. Recovery Elevator, If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I love you guys.
3: How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. In the seeing of who you are not, the reality of who you are emerges by itself. Life isn't as serious as my mind makes it out to be. Being must be felt. Built. It can't be thought. About. Your inner purpose is to awaken. The world with words and labels the sense of the miraculous returns to your life that was lost a long time ago when humanity instead of using thought became possessed by thought the word i embodies the greatest error and the deepest truth depending on how it is used in normal everyday usage I embodies the primordial error, a misperception of who you are, an illusory sense of identity. This is the ego.